Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, September 29th, we are studying Proverbs chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. The divine wisdom Solomon speaks gives great benefit to numerous aspects of our lives, a great benefit that is experienced both temporally and eternally. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Tim Cook. Pastor Cook serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Always a pleasure to be here. Pastor Cook, as we get started, we find ourselves in Proverbs 19. You've actually got one of the shorter sections in the book compared to some of our guests. We might get to all or most of it today. What do we need to know about Proverbs, wisdom literature by way of introduction that will help us with these verses today? The thing I would probably say is Proverbs, in a sense, invite us to do the thing that pastors are always telling us not to do, which is uh, take things out of context, (laughs) because Proverbs are um, not—they have a lot of context, but it's not a literary context. Um, Proverbs are words that are invited to be put into a context. And so uh, sometimes a proverb works, and sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes proverbs um, contradict each other. And so wisdom and a current context um, will dictate what's the appropriate thing to say at the appropriate time. It's very much like a law-gospel application. Um, It's a little bit of a learned art. So um, an example of contradicting Proverbs in American usage would be um, opportunity knocks but once, um, and yet that would seem to send a contradictory message to only only fools rush in where angels dare to tread. Mm. Um, and so those are kind of running uh, opposite directions, and so... Th- well, when do they apply? What are their limits? Well, that depends on a context, but it's not, well, what came before this and what came after it. It's where is this being used? Oh. So there you go. So it's not, uh, you don't, how would I say that? Proverbs invite you to put them into context, into a context, um, because they do not necessarily have a very strong um literary context. Now I'm sure a commentator on the book of Proverbs will argue with me a little bit there, but uh, they don't, they can't hold a candle to say the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So, sure. There's, there's, there's not a, I got for an intro. okay. And that, that's good. There's not a literary context. They do invite us to put them into a context. I think that's a helpful way of, of thinking about them. As I was laying this series out at the very beginning, One of my hopes was that I would discover, occasionally at least, some cohesion within this section of Proverbs. Occasionally, it's there. 
But a lot of times, like you said, there's not much context from one verse to the next in a literary sense. But I do think that there is a context that we have to put Proverbs into to understand it well, which would be the scriptural context. That Correct. Is, I mean, that would prevent us from saying, for example, I mean, just making it sort of just these American Proverbs that you were just listing – what we've got here is in a different sort of context than those, and I can't remember the two you, you named now, but it's a different context. And that larger context is important for understanding the book. Absolutely. And they have the sanctification uh, or the blessing, as it were. Of, yeah, so what what is the context of the Proverbs? Well, it's a creedal framework, hmm. right? These are uh, God the Father created us, God the Son redeemed us, Holy Spirit sanctifies Um and, and so you have all of that. You're going to continue to hold and maintain uh, your very classic distinctions between law and gospel. Uh, you will at all times maintain uh, justification by grace through faith. So yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly a, uh, a Christian framework mm. um, or context, if you will. And uh, it will certainly apply to um, non-Christians, Occasionally, we imagine uh, Solomon here, not that we imagine, you know, Solomon is the author, he's a keen observer of the human condition, Uh, so a lot of this will just ring true to life, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, but the truth is, these are part of the Christian canon, inspired by the Holy Spirit for to make us wise into salvation, teach useful for uh, teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Um, so, yep, all that is coming into play, but this is such a far cry from even even the Psalms uh, have mm. a much greater literary dependency on what precedes and follows it um, than than these do. Mm. So, this is uh, well, it invites it, Proverbs invite fantastic conversation because everybody has a story to tell. Everyone has an experience, and with any amount of meditation or reflection, they can, oh, hey, that reminds me of, and so the, they find that it rings true to life, and in that way, uh, the Word of God allows for maybe a clearer or more faithful evaluation of our experiences uh and then our our hoped for plans, as it were. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and see then how these proverbs that we've got for today ring true to life. What the wisdom is that Solomon is speaking in this text. We've only got twelve verses, and I say only because we have had much larger sections at a time. I'm going to go ahead and read all of it for us, Pastor Cook, and then we'll come back individually to the verses, maybe move around within the text a little bit, not necessarily always verse by verse, but I think we can go ahead and read all 12 to start. Proverbs 19, beginning at verse 1. Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. Desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. 
All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. Whoever gets sense loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will discover good. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. It is not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a slave to rule over princes. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. A king's wrath is like the growling of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. All right, that's the text for today, Proverbs 19, verses 1 through 12. So we'll start with verse 1 and see how the conversation goes. Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and a fool. What's the what's the comparison that's being made in this verse, Pastor Cook? Sure. Yeah, you would expect that to say better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than a rich person, but the rich person does not uh, get referenced here. After my big long speech about uh, minimal literary context, (laughs) I immediately shoot myself in the foot. And uh, I think part of that is because of other proverbs here throughout the book about uh, how a fool is parted from his wealth and his money, mm-hmm. etc. And so you you wouldn't necessarily expect to find a lot of information about that. However, the yeah the com- the comparison uh, is it's a it's a contrast between not rich and poor, but integrities integrity and lies or poor speech. And uh, so that's what we have that's what we have going on here. Um, Yep, that, I think that's. I'll just stop right there. Okay, so so the contrast is the integrity and and crooked speech, being a fool. That so that what's being emphasized here is not whether or not it's good to be rich or poor, but just how valuable it is to have integrity. That integrity is being set up as something that is better than earthly wealth. What? Why is integrity? Well, what is integrity? And why is that better than earthly wealth? Yeah, I've, I've uh, always appreciated the rather pithy saying that integrity is doing the right thing when no one is looking. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and so it, it's a reliability, it's a uh, consistency, it's a trustworthiness. <clears throat> um, the, I'll, I'll go back to consistency. Hmm. Uh, this is righteousness. Yeah. If you j- just look at our current um, political landscape, and not even current to this year, but just stretch it back 10 years, um, y- it's a very predictable pattern, which is you find somebody who says something, and then immediately the objection is raised, ah, but what about this over here? And so you'll hear things like, what about-ism is now a phrase that people will uh, reference and all that's happening is people are pointing out the inconsistency of an application, and that is the cause for outrage. So what what's their real objection? The real objection is a lack. It's unrighteous. It's injustice. Inconsistency is injustice. And so I will. Um, a few years ago, there were significant um, protests on the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota because uh, they were doing the North American something pipeline. 
N-A-D, N-A, I forget it now, the, the acronym, it was four letters, started with an N. Um, anyway, that pipeline uh, intersected, uh, dissected, it was, yeah, it cut between, my, I had a dual point parish at the time in South hmm. Dakota. And they ran that pipeline between my two parishes that were, or two congregations that were only eight miles apart. Wow. So uh, I saw lots of national media about how terrible this is, et cetera. It's terrible for the environment. You know, it was a lot of environmental concerns and causes, et cetera. And everybody pointed out to leaking pipelines and all of what you would expect. Well, uh, then uh, what you didn't see published were the or what didn't get as much national attention was the protests themselves were a far greater environmental plight than um, the pipeline, which which is people just left their garbage everywhere, all these protesters. They had to bring in the um, Coast Guard or the know, National Guard to come in for days and days and days and clean up just the total disaster. So people on the one hand are protesting, oh, we got to take care of the environment, and they're throwing their plastic water bottles on the ground and leaving behind all of this waste. That's inconsistent. And so a fair number of people were trying to bring that out. This is unjust. All right. So that's a long sermon illustration, as it were, uh, to point out that integrity is a man who conducts himself with consistency, which looks a little bit like righteousness. And now we're not a far cry from the beauty of Hebrews 3, 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hmm. Uh, and so that is the, the true righteousness of, of Christ. But that, that's integrity. It's better to have integrity. You know what you're getting. Uh, hmm. It's better to know what you're getting. And um, that's, uh, yeah, it's better than riches. It's better than anything. Right, that, that consistency... And that consistency, and you're taking us to Hebrews 13, I think is a great move. That consistency for us as Christians comes from what what does Christ do and what does his word say? And that's where our consistency is going to lie for us as Christians. So verse two, desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. What is the problem with desire without knowledge? Uh, it is unrestrained, and it is likely to go poorly, like giving a kid a bunch of Halloween candy and then <laughs> just letting them run. They just run wild in frenetic movements that is nothing but a path of destruction. And so, again, if you, if you talk to maybe coaches, they'll talk about, oh, maybe a kid who's tough to control in school, but he's an incredible you know, sports almost becomes like this saving outlet for them because they have a way to focus their energy or their passion uh, in a way that is good. And so to have a desire for something but no ability to carry it out, is uh, that's, that's not helpful. And anyone who's done, uh, I think a good readily made example here is anyone who's taken up a do-it-yourself home improvement project that's beyond their capabilities. Uh, they have this great desire, but they lack the knowledge of how to, you know, lay tile. And what happens? 
Uh, you spend a lot of money, you make a mess, you fight with your spouse over how this all goes, and you end up paying someone to do it for you at the end anyway. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, let's uh, let's have some knowledge about. There's nothing wrong with the desire. That's not the problem. Hmm. It's uh, it's that we need. It's more than that. It's desire plus plus knowledge, the ability to know what to do with the good thing you've got. Hmm. So that would be. Um, I, there's just so, and again, the Proverbs lend themselves. There's a thousand different examples here. Um, as a, you know, as a kid, I grew up in Minnesota. There are lots of trees, you know, running around in the woods with my friends. Oh, man, you know, we see a picture of a log cabin. We're ready to go. We got this desire. We're going to go out. We're going to cut down some trees. We've got our little hatchets that we took out of our dad's garage. And we're going to build ourselves a house. And it's just, you know, it's tiring. And after about three logs, get... <laughs> we lose our interest and nothing comes of it except, uh, you know, nothing that would even pass for a lean to. So, uh, and Pastor Cook, maybe there's a connection we can draw between that verse into the next, not, I mean, maybe not like as direct as again with the epistles or the gospels, but this idea that the desire without knowledge is not good, that when you rush into something to use the image from the second half of the verse without the knowledge, you're likely to make a mess of things. And, and I think verse three speaks to that. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. So you've, you've rushed into something without any knowledge. Your desire has foolishly led you towards something that you should not have done. You find that that foolishness brings your way to ruin. And generally speaking, what happens? You get mad and you get mad particularly at God, Solomon says here. Right. Um, this verse reminds me of Genesis chapter 3, the fall and the sin. Uh, Eve eats the forbidden fruit. Um, Adam stands there and watches it happen. God comes to earth, uh, and he, he confronts Adam first. And then Adam says, well, it was a woman you put here with me, God, right? So this subtle attack, like, God, this is your fault. Mm. If you'd have given me uh, something better to work with, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And then Eve, likewise, uh, it's like, well, it's it's the serpent, right? Well, the crafty serpents which the Lord God made. So again, kind of a subtle insult um, toward toward God. This is your fault, God. And they, it's just a failure to take responsibility. Because if you take responsibility, you have to admit you're not God. And if you admit you're not God, then you admit uh, complicitly that you need God, and that's humbling. Hmm. And especially Americans, um, humility, being humble, is not probably our uh, greatest national strength. We're prone to arrogance, uh, which is why ugly American is a phrase that is used by tourist-leaning countries around the world. Um, so just a, a humbleness there. But it is funny how quickly, you know, people just, they blame they, they blame God. Hmm. Just, it couldn't possibly be me. I'm great. I'm so wonderful. It couldn't possibly be my fault. So it's hmm. got to be something else. Clearly, forces were working beyond my control, you know, if, and that's, that's the great lie that's the great lie of Satan, I think, if uh, 
you know, you really would have, everything would work out perfectly if everyone would just do what I said all the time. Hmm. Um. So on a, I mean, and to take this then in a, in the positive direction, which Solomon doesn't speak here, if, if the folly leads to ruin and that leads us to rage against the Lord, that would be the way of, of folly, the way of wickedness, to use other terms that Solomon has used in Proverbs. The way of wisdom or the way of righteousness, when our folly brings us to ruin, instead of anger, the appropriate response would be humility and I think confession as well, going off of, again, Genesis 3 and, of course, other examples from Scripture. Yeah, um, whenever I, I just taught this yesterday in catechism class, um, we're recording this on a Thursday, I suppose we should tell people that, so it makes a little more sense. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we were talking about uh, sin and read the story of David and Bathsheba, yep. and, uh, you know, he gets he just gets absolutely pinned to the wall by Nathan the prophet. You are the man, right? And now we're waiting. We're waiting for God, uh, or waiting for David. Uh, what's his reply going to be? What's he going to do? And his reply is, I have sinned against the Lord. Hmm. But he, he could have run it. That's What a confession. Because David could have done so many things. He could have been, you know, Nathan, the only reason why you're in a country at all is because I slew uh, Goliath when I was a kid, so maybe a little appreciation. He could have done the whole... Um, why is Bathsheba marrying a Hittite anyway? Don't we have a command from Nathan? You're a prophet. You should know more than anybody in Deuteronomy seven. We're not supposed to intermarry, and you let that stand. And all of a sudden, now it's you're coming at me. Where were you when she got married to him in the first? I mean, there are so many ways King David could have just moved this conversation and just, you know, shrugged off the responsibility of his actions, and he doesn't do any of that. Uh, what he does is he confesses his sin. He repents. And um, I've spent, I'm going to guess, more time in First and Second Samuel than most pastors, um, you know, and that's not bragging, but I've thought of this a lot, especially in the Kings, and they're always talking about our Father David, or Father David, they're always pointing out how amazing David is. Well, you read the story of David, and there's a lot of stuff in there he didn't do so great. Hmm. Uh, what is it about David that's so commendable? And uh, I'm the more I've studied, the more I think on this, I truly, the premier um, characteristic of David is he always repents. He hmm. always repents, even when it comes to crazy census he takes at the end of his life that kills so many people. Um, he repents. Every mm. time he's confronted with his sin, he repents. Mm. Um, and all the other, I mean, his own son, Solomon, was good to start out with, got bad later on, and you can see that play out again and again and again. Uh, like Joash, it happened with Joash, happened with Josiah, happened with uh, Uzziah, who contracted leprosy, happens with Hezekiah at the end when he's like, ah, who cares if my kids get castrated in Babylon? I'm, it won't happen during my lifetime. I mean, they all just, they give up on the whole repentance thing, but not David. David mm. always repents and returns to the Lord. So yeah, that's the positive thrust of this verse that's not as explicit. I appreciate what you've said about David there. And I think that account in Second Samuel, that is, 
I don't know if I, maybe I could say it this way. It's one of the greatest miracles in the Old Testament, perhaps the greatest one, that that King David repents of his sin. And and for all the reasons, as you said, the excuses he could have offered, not to mention he's the king. And and the right. king could do whatever he wants. <laughs> he he but doesn't now he ended up in that position. <laughs> exactly. So the fact that he repents is is truly the work of the Holy Spirit upon King David at that moment through the words spoken by the prophet Nathan. And and I think I think you're right to connect it to like his his ongoing legacy in the scriptures as the one that is everyone's compared to. I think that that's I think that's a good move to say that this is this is the event. I I recall I don't remember who pointed this out to me whether it was at seminary or my undergrad or somewhere else along the way. The book of Psalms starts with "Blessed is the man" in Psalm one, as you know, and and you, you get this description of what the blessed man is. And I'm not again. I don't know who put this out, but in Psalm thirty-two, which is a Psalm of David, he speaks about a man who is blessed as well. And this one's actually a double blessing. Psalm 32 starts, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Again, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That the to be a blessed man or to, to be for David, a man after God's own heart, to use that, that phrase that shows up in the scriptures, is for him to be a forgiven one, a repentant and forgiven sinner. And I, I mean, I think that fits with what you're saying about David. Yeah, and, and where... You- it, it gets even starker, and I know this isn't a study on First and Second Kings, but uh, when you're running through the kingdom of Judah, in contrast to that, you have the kingdom of Israel, which always begins with following in the sins of Jeroboam, hmm. their father. Well, what was Jeroboam's problem? No, absolutely no repentance. No repentance at all. Um, in fact, he dissuaded people from repenting. He built the golden calves of Bethel and Dan to prevent them from worshiping the Lord uh, in in Jerusalem, and uh, and he establishes his own priestly class, and he takes them from not the Levites, uh, so he gets uh, poorly educated, unordained people uh, to set up a false uh, priesthood, and then he gives them false places, and then get this, the the golden calves that get destroyed that he builds get destroyed by Josiah, mm. who's a king of Judah who became king of Judah after the kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians, which means when the Assyrians came in and took over the northern kingdom, there was nothing about the golden calves that was offensible enough to the Assyrians to destroy them. Mm. Mm. Like, they just let them stand there, like, oh yeah, this pagan worship thing is, yeah, we know all about that. When the Babylonians come into Jerusalem, you better believe they took down that temple. Mm. They completely destroyed it because it was an affront to, you know, it's the same thing. Like, if the bad guys come in and your worship places aren't offensive enough for them to tear down because it speaks contrary to their mode of life, you're probably doing it wrong. So, okay, I'm done. No, that, that that's all. I mean, <laughs> these examples from the time of the Kings are, are very instructive to this section of Proverbs. And just to, to make the point again from verse three, folly gets angry at the Lord in sin, wisdom repents and trusts in him for forgiveness. You're listening to sharper iron here on KFUO. Going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, September 29th. We're looking at Proverbs chapter 19, verses 1 through 12 with Pastor Tim Cook. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. We're making pretty good progress this morning, but if we don't get to a proverb that you want to hear more about, give us a call, 314-996-1542. Leave a message there on the listener comment line or send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org and let us know what proverb you want to hear more about. I'll put out some bonus podcast material on individual proverbs that we hear back from you so that you can have your faith sharpened through the study of the book of Proverbs. Pastor Cook, we left off in verse three, we were talking about, I mean, this, this is a theme that we see throughout the scriptures. Solomon continues in verse four, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Now here we do have rich and poor mentioned together, but again, it seems less about the rich and poor as it does about the idea of what it means to have a friend or be a friend. Yeah, you can run it uh, either way. I, I like to focus on the friend uh, aspect uh, because of where the Gospels go, um, or even where Paul does about don't be afraid to associate with the lowly, the emphasis on taking care of the widow and the orphan, um, Jesus instructing people, when you throw a party, throw a party for people who can't pay you back. And so Christ becomes a friend um, to us, even though we have nothing to offer him. Uh, so it, it accentuates the the pure, the purity of the love of God, and um, and then also maybe how how Christians should conduct their uh, their affairs, um, which is it's yeah it's easy to it's easy to buddy up to the the guy who's who's wealthy. I'm a pastor in South Dakota where um, a fair number of my Members are at least on their their paper rich because they have large tracts of land through which they do their farming, and so I will occasionally have uh, deal with conversations about like a prenup, which mm. seems just antithetical to what marriage is, right? Mm. Um, this idea of how do we protect ourselves as this thing fails, but always just lingering in the back of people's minds who have this land is, are, are, is it, do they actually care about me? Is it about me? Hmm. Is this relationship about me at all? Or are they here because of, uh, my wealth? And they don't know how to get through that. But I mean, they don't know how to sniff that out, so to speak. And so a prenup kind of allows them to do that. Like, all right, if it's really about me and not about my money, sign this piece of paper. Well, all of a sudden, (laughs) Uh, she or he gets a little nervous too. Wait, what is this? I thought we were doing this. For... So it's a mess, you know, but that, that wealth thing, it really complicates. Do people care for me, for me? Uh, or is it because they can get something out of me? And that's the beauty of the cross of Christ, hmm. which is he gets what out of it? Nothing. I mean, not from you. Um, 
So uh, you don't have to wonder about the motives of Christ's love for you. It is true and pure. Uh, mm. And so reflect that, uh, the friend, uh, the poor, and the lonely. Um, not that wealthy, uh, wealthy people don't need friends, too, but maybe the lesson there would be if you know somebody who's wealthy, they might need a friend more than anyone, yeah. um, but conduct yourself in a way where they're aware that you're not just, you know, doing it for your own benefit. Mm. So verse 4 would be an example of an observation that Solomon is making, but he's not commending that observation necessarily as a habit for Christians to conduct themselves according to. So when he says wealth brings many new friends, he's, he's not necessarily, I mean, and, and that a poor man is deserted by his friend. He's not suggesting that Christians should go desert all their friends who happen to be poor. But you're correct. <laughs> rather, and we've seen this elsewhere in the book of Proverbs where, where Solomon will make this observation, as you said earlier, that just rings true to the way life tends to work. That doesn't mean that he's necessarily commending that as the way for Christians to follow. And I think the way that you've expounded upon it helps us to see, well, so if this is the way things tend to be, how do Christians act, especially in light of what Jesus has done in his cross, the, the way that he has set aside his wealth to make us his friends apart from any benefit that might be his. It, instead, it's, it's completely for our benefit. Yes, and this is why, as we said at the very beginning, this is why you take a proverb and you put it into a context, right? This is a Christian context. The world would not view these verses in this way. They would run them more the direction you said, which is, uh, well— they do, if you want to sanitize that language, it's just called networking, right? It's all networking. Who do you know? Who do you know? What can you get from them? How can it work? And, you know, and I don't mean to suggest that networking on a business level is uh, faithless or sinful. I'm not suggesting that at all. Um, but that's, you know, that's a far different kind of uh, conversation than uh, when you take this um, proverb, and you put it within the context of uh, Christ's uh, atoning sacrifice and death on the cross. Mm, yeah. So, verse, and I'm going to jump us down here a bit. We might we may come back, but verse seven seems to relate thematically to verse four that that we can connect these two a bit. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. And I know you're going to mention this, just there is a footnote in the ESV that the meaning of that Hebrew phrase there at the end is uncertain. One thing that's maybe worth just pointing out is that we've got here a proverb that is more than a couplet. It's more than two lines. You get a third line, which is not entirely unknown in Hebrew poetry, but mostly we've seen couplets, two lines at a time in or by what's what's the bicolon? Is that right? Is that the the right way of the most the more technical way of talking about it? You, you can correct me, Pastor Cook. Take us into uh, verse seven, regardless. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, good. <laughs> well, then we can be together in our ignorance. Take us into what verse seven is saying. How how does it relate to verse four? How does it add to it, and so forth? Right. So, uh, just as a wealth attracts many new friends, uh, poverty has a way of. Uh, casting people from you, or they they leave or want no part of that, which is why we have to include in the vows at a, at a marriage uh, for richer, for poorer, uh, right? What happens when the guy you're marrying is, the gal you're marrying is, you know, loses their job? How do we uh, soldier through that? Um, 
And so if, uh, if the brothers, right, blood is thicker than water kind of a thing, um, if your brothers will even leave a poor man, how much more so than the, the friends? We see an example of this with uh, the parable of the prodigal son, mm. right? He comes yeah. back and his older brother just nothing to do with this kid, right? He tells the father, uh, this son of yours instead of this brother of mine, mm. you know. Uh, so you see that. Now, it does say he pursues them with words, referring to the poor man here as pursuing those who have abandoned him. Um, and that could be a pursuit in a beg, like, please come back, I need you, um, is one route. Um, because pursue is sometimes often used in the sense of warriors uh, pursuing you know, enemies and cutting them down when they catch up to them, it's possible this also... Uh, is he threatens, he's threatening them, he's pursuing them with his word, I'll get you someday. Um, but uh, regardless, it says uh, he, he doesn't have them. So it's not, either way, it's probably not compelling or helpful. Um, so he can't help his cause just by shouting empty words. Well, let's That's go. Best as I can do with the uncertain Hebrew. No, I think that's, I think that's helpful. And, and to recognize that, that either might be possible, but, but I think both would, would work, both would fit into certain contexts. So let's go back up to verse five, because it is almost identical to verse nine, a false witness. This is verse five. A false witness will not go unpunished and he who breathes out lies will not escape. And you can, you can see that that's almost identical to verse nine, both in language, certainly in thought. Uh, What's being said here? Um, (laughs) Well, it's, it is plain. False witness will not go unpunished. This is a case where that proverb, I would argue, does not ring true to life. Hmm. Um, false, false witnesses get away with it, which it, it's so common to get away with it that we have to have a command not to do it, right? Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, so this is a case where this definitely has a context, not necessarily literary, so it's that too, but the context of this is spoken by uh, a redeemed child, anointed child of God, uh, Solomon, and so he's operating under uh, the framework or the assumption that there is a God who will judge. Um, he will not let the wicked go unpunished. And so the false witness thing, uh, they will receive their do reward. I like, I prefer the word come up and because it's more fun to say, but <laughs> they'll get theirs. They will. But you know, when, um, uh, Jezebel, uh, wrangles up the evil men to do false, be false witnesses against Naboth to take his vineyard. Uh, none of them are held accountable for that. Hmm. Jezebel eventually gets thrown out of the temple. So I guess she catches her own, but, um, but there's no indication that, uh, Wicked men who were instrumental in the death of um, Naboth were ever held accountable in this life for their deeds. Yeah, we've we've seen verses like this in the book of Proverbs that in order to understand them and appreciate them, you really have to take the long view. And and by that, I, I mean, you have to go all the way to the resurrection to, to know the truth of this, that, that where is the false witness finally punished? Where is the one who breathes out lies finally to that point where he cannot escape? It does come in the resurrection at the judgment of the living and the dead. And in, in that sense, the 
considering the judgment as Christians, which we confess each week in the creed, is a, is a matter of comfort to us when we find ourselves as those who have been spoken against, when we've had false witness brought against us, the matter of judgment and knowing that the Lord is the one who makes things right does become a very comforting doctrine for Christians. Right. It also removes you from being uh, put into the role of judge. Now, I've never been a judge in a judicial sense, but I have had occasion to be in a courtroom, uh, particularly through a fair amount of time I spent uh, in foster care. Hmm. And that is, uh, you know, you don't have to be in a courtroom long to know that judges carry a certain burden on them because they're making these, these decisions. So. To say something as simple as the Lord rebuke you, uh, as we uh, read about in Jude, I believe, um, that's, uh, that's comforting because it, it's just putting everything where it belongs, which is there is judgment. I'm confident. I'm trusting in Jesus that he will do it. I know what his words say. I know what your actions are. And, uh, and though in my judgment it's certainly wrong, I'll, I can leave it to the Lord. I trust that he'll take care of it on my behalf. Uh, so you don't, you don't have to make it about you, per se. You can just retreat back to, to Christ, hmm. and that's always a good place to be. You're also absolutely right, that long view. So sometimes Proverbs are a case where you're just making an observation of something you see in the world, like the wealth brings many new friends. But sometimes Proverbs or wisdom, you need to say something that isn't as obvious uh, to somebody you need to uh, teach them, um, and so you have to you have to reassure them. And um, this is an example of that, where he is speaking something that isn't immediately obvious. And so, by way of an analogy, because I enjoy those, uh, I, if I have one hobby that is greater than all other hobbies, it's archery. Hmm. Um, I'm in a archery league, and I'm. Not bad at it, probably the best way to say it. Uh, so I will, um, I'm training, training, so to speak. My son, I have him come with me and shoot the bow, and he does not share the love of archery that I do at all, um, which is uh, its own thing. But I also help out with 4-H, and um, the, the kids, they just want to get the arrow this is desire without knowledge. They just want that arrow to go into the center, and that's all they care about. Um, but you know what? You can't get better at archery when you don't ever do the same thing the same way twice in a row because you're making internal compensations for, well, my arrow was to the right, so now I'm going to aim to the left. It's like, no, I need you to just keep aiming at the same spot every time, even if all your arrows end up five feet away from where they need to be, we need all those arrows in the same place before we can move you toward mm-hmm. getting getting better. So this is along that line too. So um, because I have to tell the kid, right, missing the target, the arrow completely skitters across the ground, you know, launches over the target and it's buried in the grass. Um, you know, they're quick to tears and they're crying and you've got to stand there and tell them the wisdom, which is that's okay. And everything in their mind says, it's not okay to miss the target. You can't miss the target. That's not acceptable. And the answer is, yes, it is. It's preferred. I'd rather you miss the target a thousand times but miss it all in the same place uh, than miss the target once uh, but make poor decisions after that. So. Mm-hmm. 
there's my long analogy. Probably too long, but I think it works. Well, and, and so the, the application then to this is that the Lord would rather us continue in upright living, avoiding false witness, even when the results that we see are that false witness never gets punished, that that false witness does escape in this life. The Lord would rather continue, would rather have us continue then in receiving that earthly result now, perhaps for a while, in the confidence that on the last day, he's the one that's going to make it right. That's how those two things would connect, right? Yes. Okay. Good. Just wanted to make sure I was following you with your your archery. There's nothing in here about there's nothing about pride in this text. I don't think, Pastor Cook. So it's okay for you to say you're a pretty good archer. I'm pretty good. All right, all right. That's, that's, well, duly noted. <laughs> so, Pastor Cook, I'm gonna I'm gonna move us now to verse four because you've got a few notes on on this matter of understand. Not did I say verse four? I meant verse eight. Whoever <laughs> you've got a matter. Oh man, whoever gets sense loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will discover good. You've got some notes on that word understanding that I think are helpful. Yeah, so this is a case. Um, it jumped me to the parable of the sower, where we have the sower casting his seeds on the four different groups of soil, the, the path, the thorns, the rocks, and the good soil. And then Christ explains which, which each of these groups of soil is, and it's the good soil that bears 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold, um, that soil is the one who hears the Word of God and understands it. All four soils hear the Word of God. The thing that separates the good soil from the other soil is that they understand it. So here's a nice shameless plug for catechesis. Uh, it is about understanding. Now you see this play out uh, perfectly in Acts chapter 8 with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, which is the Holy Spirit guides Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. He approaches the chariot, and the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53 uh, and the suffering servant song, uh, like a lamb led before his shears of silence, so he opened not his mouth. And Philip gets up uh, in the chariot, so to speak, and he says, uh, hey, do you, um, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? And then it says, and beginning with this passage... Uh, he shared with him the good news. Uh, and so he needs to, Philip, uh, helps the Ethiopian eunuch understand how this passage is pointing to uh, Christ. So, of course, everything is going to come back. Everything is going to come back to, um, to Christ. And so it is with, with our understanding. Um, just, yeah, if you... Uh, value <laughs> uh, understanding what's happening. That's that's a that's a good thing. And again, to go back to maybe that context language, let's put this in the appropriate context, a creedal framework: God who created us, the Son who redeems us, and will come again, a Holy Spirit who sanctifies us. Uh, and that that's good. That's good for your soul. That is called good sense, hmm. wisdom. Hmm. So it's good to be understanding. And you can connect it to verse 2 as well. The idea of desire without knowledge is not good. That that understanding brings this good sort of desire or lets, lets the desire lead you in a good direction. In particular, as you said, the understanding that does come from the scriptures that all of this is pointing to 
Christ crucified, risen for us sinners. Let's go to, let's go to, we've got, oh, seven and a half minutes. I want to, I think I want to end with verse 11, Pastor Cook, because I think there's, there's a lot of stuff there that's, it's quite applicable to, I mean, all of this is, but give me just a couple minutes on verse 10. I think verse 11 will serve as a, a very fitting conclusion. So verse 10 first, it is not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a slave to rule over princes. What's, what's not fitting about a fool living in luxury and a slave ruling over princes? Uh, it's unjust. <laughs> Essentially is, uh, the, the first one, the fool living in, in luxury. Um, it, uh, it just runs counter to good work ethic. It runs counter to understanding, right? A fool is lacking all this stuff. So for him to uh, reap the rewards that are built into creation by our Father in Heaven is it's just an affront to our normal uh, sensibilities. Um, and then uh, for a slave to rule over princes is um, to be, it's just the order of the world upside down. Um, why do you have this guy calling the shots? If, if I can run back to Genesis chapter 3, God creates the world in a very orderly fashion. Uh, he uh, puts man, he gives man dominion over the animals, and then within humanity, he establishes an order uh, of male headship. So it's kind of uh, one, uh, if we're going to do numbers, one is a man, 1.1 or 1a is woman, and then uh, they have dominion over all of creation, which would be, uh, we'll say, 2.0. Um, then when you get to Genesis chapter 3, that order that God has built into creation is flipped on its head. And so you have the serpent, uh, who is supposed to be under the dominion of mankind. He's the one calling the shots. He's the one doing the ordering and the directing and the bossing around, and he doesn't do it over the... Um, he doesn't talk to the man, he speaks to the woman. And so he's flipped this just completely on its head, and, uh, of course, the, the woman eats and the, the husband was uh, there with her and did nothing about it, which is not good. So when Christ comes and confronts them in the garden, uh, he flips it back in the direction that it's supposed to be, which is he doesn't confront Satan first. He doesn't confront Eve first. He starts with Adam, and he works from Eve, and then from Eve he talks to Satan. So God puts it back in that order. You don't want the slave ruling over princes. Uh, it's just contrary it's well then what's the point are you even a slave at that point no you're not you're you've been elevated to king in the same way that uh bitterness can become its own god in the point that it'll cause you to change your i mean your whole life will be ruined or directed by a bitterness that you harbor against somebody else Mm. so uh, Mm. it's unfitting Mm. that's 10 all right verse 11 then good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. I think you got the the idea of anger, rage coming up again, and and I think the the theme of forgiveness is coming up, which is a good connection to verse three. So verse three says that it is foolishness to be angry at the Lord when you have sinned. Instead, wisdom would be to confess. We can connect that, I think, to verse eleven. Having been forgiven by the Lord, being 
staying out of that anger that I naturally would have had. Now I've been forgiven, and so I continue to be slow to anger, and in that slowness to anger, now I forgive others. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Pastor Craig, we've got about three and a half minutes to take a look at this verse and close things up for this morning. Take a deep breath. There's a reason why hopefully your mother or grandmother told you when you were angry, you know, take deep breaths, count to 10, you know, that kind of a thing, and it worked. It works, and it's amazing. Anger is so very much an in-this-moment thing. My parents were both teachers. They say you don't discipline a student when you're angry. Uh, I have uh, somewhat succeeded in that as a parent, uh, but I do keep it in, do keep it in mind. Um, then uh, we have – this reminds me of Psalm 39, uh, which I have to bring into this. Psalm 39 has this great setup where it talks about anger kind of building within a person. So verse 1 says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. Verse 2, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, right? It's building. The pressure is growing. My distress grew worse. Verse 3, my heart became hot within me. I mused the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Uh-oh, what did he speak? Well, here's the good thing. He spoke to the Lord, so he at least directed his frustration in a good direction. He says, O oh Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. And so in my own notes, I take copious notes and I read Scripture. The corrective to building anger is the perspective of fleeting days in a and a short life, uh, which which is uh, the thing that's making you mad, is it, it, it's not important. It's not as important as you think it is. Um, it, it's just not your own life. Your whole, the entirety of your life, is as a handbreadth before God. Your lifetime is nothing before the Lord. Psalm thirty nine, verse five says. So if your whole life is that small um, in the grand scheme of things, how much more this moment within within that life. So corrective to anger is put it all in perspective. Put it all in perspective. So instead of just blowing your cork and shouting at people and making everyone uncomfortable, uh, hold your peace, hold your tongue. You can make your complaint to the, your lament to the Lord. Uh, he'll listen to you. Uh, and that is a, a good thing. This then leads into the second half of the verse. Uh, which speaks about it's the glory to overlook an offense. Um, to, uh, you know, we we don't have to demand revenge or rectification or for every grievance against us. We can live as Christ lived. We can forgive it. We can overlook it. You know, love covers a multitude of sins. We don't have to demand justice. At every turn, the Lord will come and be a judge of the living and the dead at the last day. So we deep breaths, and then it's our glory. It's a unique, blessed feature of humanity that we can. Well, I was hurt there, but I don't, I don't need to let that hurt. I don't need to let the wrong that somebody did dictate the terms of my life and my relationship with them. How about I let the love of God do that? 
Mm. I overlook the offense, I forgive the offense, I treat them with mercy and favor and smiles and uh, good things. So, uh, right, the favor of a king is like dew on the grass, which is the next verse. That's a better way to live than the growling lion. Pastor Tim Cook is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota, helping us this morning with Proverbs 19, verses 1 through 12. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Tim of the Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.